This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today, you'll be listening to a very special episode of our podcast. We'll be starting out with a discussion of the Occupy ICE movement with Robert J., the spokesperson for Occupy ICE Detroit, and Gregory McKelvey, founder of Portland Resistance. Then, we'll take a quick break to tell you about our Patreon. Then we'll get right back with a discussion of the Trump administration's family separation policy with Carolina Bordaletto of CT Students for a Dream. Now, let's get started with our conversation with Robert and Gregory. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So, Robert, could you start us off by telling us about the Occupy ICE movement and how it started? Occupy ICE Detroit started with uh, a number of concerned activist groups following uh, the Families Belong Together movement gaining steam. We we're finally at a point where uh, issues of the plight of immigrants under Trump and also by extension under Obama and Bush were very much in the forefront of the public's consciousness. So we decided that now was the time to actually make a, a move for further direct action to see what we can do as regular citizens to try to put a stop to the genocide that's occurring within our borders. Got a, we got an organizational team with some uh, local activist groups, um, some of them more on the uh, progressive end, some of them Antifa chapters, and we came together and set up a plan to try to shut down the ICE facility in the vein of what Portland did, who were our primary sources of inspiration. Robert, you just used the word genocide to describe what's happening within our borders, and that's something that's so essential to know. Could you explain how this is genocide? Effectively, I'm going off of what I believe is the UN Human Rights Council definition of genocide. It's, uh, it's basically set up in 10 stages, and I believe that we, when you account for right-wing hate groups, I suppose I'm being redundant by saying right-wing and hate group. But nevertheless, when you fold in their activities with the actions of the state, we are at the point where we are now uh, specifically persecuting racial groups. Uh, in this case, it would be uh, black, Latin and Muslim groups are in the crosshairs the most right now. They are either being executed by law enforcement extra legally. Uh, they're being rounded up at the border. We're denying them asylum. Uh, typically, they're from countries that we as citizens of the United States are partially responsible for destabilizing. Anytime that you're ripping families apart, you're forcing babies into detention facilities. We're not quite at uh, the 1940s Nazi death camps yet, but we're firmly at stage eight of genocide. We do have literal child concentration camps at this point. Gregory, the Occupy ICE movement in Portland has been incredibly successful. Could you tell us about what's been going on and why it's been working? Yeah, so we started, it started with just a small group of people, like five people. Um, luckily, we have a huge activist culture in Portland, um, and we're, it's a, it's a small city, so, I mean, as, as far as major cities go. Um, so we have the ability sort of to all be very connected within various socialist groups or progressive groups or anarchist groups and, and, and really at this point, um, even just Democrats, um, who are, and so since we were so connected, um, just the word came out from those early five people that, that were there to start bringing supplies and start bringing people and it just grew from there. Robert, I want to touch upon something else you said. You mentioned the plight of immigrants under Obama and Bush as well as Trump. Could you explain how what's going on is part of a broader trend in American history rather than just policies kicked off by the Trump administration? Well, uh, America has absolutely had a, a very long and disgusting history with persecution of anyone that isn't white. You have all of the Native, Native American genocide, uh, 
most horrifically punctuated with the Trail of Tears. We have Japanese internment, slavery, Jim Crow. And following 9-11 under Bush, we began a very concerted effort to persecute people from the Middle East. Now, there certainly has been a, a certain revelry and cruelty that has been ramped up since Trump came to power, but there still was a fair amount of family separation occurring under DHS with Bush and Obama. Typically, it was reserved for situations where uh, an agent felt that perhaps a parent wasn't being entirely honest, like maybe they were just pretending to be a parent with a kid, or maybe the kid was in a bad situation or unaccompanied children would be detained. I think morally, it still makes sense to have an issue of if an unaccompanied child shows up at the border, you don't really want to be throwing them in a facility resembling a jail cell. That, to me, seems cruel. Now, under Trump, we've had the zero po tolerance policy where they just actively try to separate all families at the borders. And now immigration proceedings are being considered criminal cases instead of civil. So despite his executive order, as soon as criminal seating proceedings begin, families will be separated all over again. So we still had a bad thing for a long time under Bush and Obama, but as Trump does with everything else, it, it's always more and it's always worse in the here and now. I, I think it's important to touch on the fact that um, a lot of cities think that they are basically sanctuary and their politicians get to say sanctuary and that's and that's what we have here in portland where we're a sanctuary state and a sanctuary city yet we still had an ice facility very close to downtown portland and people are still being driven on our roads to be deported out of here so if you're from an immigrant community if you and you're seeing the politicians talk about all of this rhetoric about sanctuary, but your friends are still being deported out of this sanctuary city um, based on uh, not being at check-ins or being too afraid to go to check-ins or even just small crimes um, that are that are um, perpetuated by broken windows policing, of which Portland does very well, and so this notion that. Uh, sanctuary is anything other than uh, in name only, especially, I guess, here in Portland, I can't speak to every other city, um, is another issue that I think that uh, politicians, Democrats especially, are going to have to deal with if they want to make cities sanctuary. What does that actually look like? And how can we sort of stop these facilities from happening? So we had a situation here where um, this ICE facility is going um, on and, and continuing to be a part of the deportation machine in a sanctuary city. And then the people of Portland had to stop that from happening from that facility. Um, but it shouldn't have to be us. It should be uh, we pay for those roads. So it should be the politicians shutting down those roads. And uh, it's our belief that in a sanctuary city, a sanctuary state, um, that nobody should be driven on those roads to be deported out of uh, the area. Could you explain to us what exactly broken windows policing is and how it fits into the detention and deportation system? Absolutely. So uh, broken windows policing is sort of uh, ironically um, um, perpetuated by uh, Rudy Giuliani in New York. Um, and it basically was the idea that if we over police low level crimes, um, then we will uh, society will be safer. And in many ways, that ended up being true, not because it was actually safer. It's sort of the chicken or the egg. Um, if, if we arrest all the people that we're policing, then yes, there is going to be lower crime st statistics. So here in Portland, um, you know, black people are arrested uh, for spitting in public, for not crossing the street at a right angle, uh, for, for minor drug offenses, similarly to the rest of the country, at incredibly disproportionate rates. But... Um, and, and as long as you're doing that, you can't be a sanctuary city because if you're disproportionately policing minorities, you're um, disproportionately policing immigrant communities. And so if we're throwing them into the criminal justice system, even in a sanctuary state, then that is how you get deported out of a sanctuary state in these times is that um, you, you end up in the criminal justice system. And now the federal administration has the pretense to deport you. I think that really speaks to how 
immigration and criminal justice have been treated as one and the same by the federal government, really marked by the fact that ICE and CBP exist under the DHS, which inherently labels immigrants a national security threat. How did we get to this point? How were these agencies established? What bills brought us to the point where family separation at the border is even a legal thing that can happen? I I think First, we do have to have to address the fact that America does have an, a very long-standing racist legacy. So there's always going to be a very large contingent of this country that is looking for any excuse to begin persecuting people that don't look like a jar of miracle whip. I would go back to um, 9-11 in particular as a nexus point because the Patriot Act, the formation of the Department of Homeland Security, and by extension, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, very major part of this. And it was all created due to fear of terrorism arising from the Middle East, a nation that we had been de- actively destabilizing for decades. So while we can look at 9-11 as a nexus point, I think we also need to look a little further back. Uh, Our foreign policy decisions, particularly during the Reagan era, we had uh, that whole Iran-Contra fiasco. Um, The Citizens United ruling is what allows American oligarchs such as the Koch brothers, Eric Prince, who runs a mercenary firm. You have people like uh, Dick Cheney running Halliburton. So you have all of these people that are now able to continue to be enriched from correctional facilities, uh, detention facilities, and now they're allowed to have unfettered campaign donations and they can directly buy their senators like they're a TV on sale at Best Buy. So once you have that, you're effectively able to have vertical integration amongst a military or in this case, prison industrial complex. We had 9-11 happen, so now you were able to rile up the entire country with fear of the other, and you are effectively positioning any elected official who wants to oppose that into a state where if you don't like this, you're un-American, and that tends to be a bad thing to say about yourself if you want to get reelected. So overwhelmingly, we approved extreme surveillance under the Patriot Act, we approved a an endless war in the Middle East with no real definitive goal or endpoint, and that system just continues to feed itself because the whole point of these wars isn't even to win; it's just to keep going because all the defense contractors keep making money and they continue to bribe the senators and congressional representatives that vote to continue the war and enhance their appropriations. I think that's all so important, and it reminds me of what you said in the beginning of this episode that the U.S. is complicit in destabilizing the countries where refugees are coming from. Could you elaborate upon that? And if you can, explain how this is especially true when it comes to Central America. Like during the Reagan era, we were trying to destabilize Nicaragua by funding through armaments and then also getting involved with a lot of local drug dealers to destabilize that region. I believe similar efforts were made in other Central and South American countries, uh, Honduras and El Salvador in particular come to mind as regions that we have meddled with. Or maybe you have a place like Venezuela who does a thing that we don't like. So now we, meaning the government of the United States, decides to destroy them as much as possible because there is nothing more dangerous than non-capitalist nations succeeding. In the Middle East, um, our support of Israel is morally problematic, but it also places, places us at odds with any other Middle Eastern country that would stand with Palestine, who, by all accounts, that was their land that was taken from them following the end of World War II. We've constantly tried to displace people in Afghanistan, Pakistan, going back to the Cold War when we were using them uh, for proxy wars against the Soviets, uh, just trying so hard to prevent Russia from getting a warm water port. But unfortunately now Russia realized you just bribe the right American oligarch or have enough things on them and you can just have the entire United States be your warm water port instead after stealing an election. 
Given this history of abuse and imperialism and colonization, why do you think the general public is only just now awakening to the horrors of this system? Well, I think that it's it's because of Trump. And so that's the basically only benefit of electing Donald Trump is people that um, you know, we didn't have the Women's March happening when it coming out and supporting Black Lives Matter when they were marching in these same numbers. And so it's easy to not care about the things that aren't affecting you. But the way that um, Donald Trump's rhetoric work is he's touching on everybody and everybody is more upset now. And so now we have people that sort of were comfortable in their privilege to not have to go out in March to not even think about having to shut down an ICE facility or that they they would do that um, now considering and actually going out and doing that. And so um, what we've had in Portland is a lot of people that came from Women's March uh, or, or just being upset at the election and have um, been progressively pushed to the left um, and uh, to the point where they're willing to go out and do um, what it takes to resist uh, the federal administration with their body. Largely because throughout our history, uh, violence and persecution of people of color has been normalized and those who do it tend to be absolved and enabled. Think, think about every semi-recent police shooting and how many people say stuff like the officer's just doing his job or um, you should have followed orders instead of why are you drawing your gun at all? This person is 12. Are you insane? So you have this culture where white supremacy is continually normalized and reinforced. And we get to the point where people are so ingrained at that mindset that they will try so hard to resist breaking from that mindset because then they'll start realizing just how complicit they, and I, I have to include myself in this, how complicit we all have been in an inherently destructive and racist system. And I don't think a lot of people can handle, or I don't think a lot of people choose to handle that type of rigorous self-analysis, societal analysis, especially when there's a good chance that you're not going to like what you see when you really get down to the nitty gritty of your psyche. It's just, um, it's just one of those bury your head in the sand because most of the bad things don't affect you because you put raisins in your potato salad. So that argument that they should have just followed the law is extremely common. Could you explain why the legal system is so problematic and difficult to navigate? Well, the legal system is problematic because it's an entirely for-profit entity. So it's not as though we're even trying to pursue justice with law enforcement. We have effectively turned police into state-mandated brigands. They would more likely resemble a, a clan of highwaymen in medieval Europe than they would what we would consider a community defender to be. Their, their entire point is to extort the populace with tickets for minor offenses when you incarcerate people. A lot of companies get enriched from that. Companies like Aramark uh, provide food, uh, usually at a substandard level, uh, there's certain, there's certain requirements of a minimum amount of money you have to spend on feeding prisoners, but once you get that, you're all good. So you'll start having people who are administering food delivery in those prisons, pocketing more of it, feeding them less. You'll have drug testing companies where they're best buddies with either local judges or legislators who then in turn ramp up sentences for things like possession of marijuana and DUI. So you're paying 200 bucks a month just to have the legal privilege of drug testing and uh, proving your innocence while on probation. It, it's a system that is explicitly designed to enrich the state and friends of the state. And since we've had, you know, the runaway slave patrol of the 1850s or the Klan during Jim Crow, the Klan now, it's so normal for us to see all of those forces targeting people of color specifically, and now they found a way to directly profit from it as well. So they will continue to make harsher sentences. They will try to have more patrol vehicles out, increasingly militarized patrol. They'll emphasize draw fire training significantly more than de-escalation and police training. 
there's there was actually I believe a county sheriff from the south uh, a couple of months ago who openly admitted that it is more cost effective for police departments to murder people than it is to actually go forward with due process. So looking at what's happening with protests right now, what really strikes me about the Occupy ICE protests is the effectiveness of civil disobedience. Could you tell us about why civil disobedience is so important and why protests need to be disruptive? I think the importance of direct action, first and foremost, is that it allows us to provide a way for concerned citizens to get involved and do something impactful right now. Uh, In Michigan, our primaries are on August 7th and our general election in November. There's a lot of bad things that can happen between this time and then. We are, we are factually in a genocidal state. Ideally, yes, we would be able to have the mass numbers to uh, effectively shut down any genocidal services in the country. But right now, uh, what we're trying to do at Occupy Ice Detroit is focus on what we can control. Um, we were able to successfully blockade for six hours on Monday, and we've confirmed that we prevented uh, three families from being ripped apart as a result of deportations. They weren't able to go to their check-in appointment, so uh, nothing could happen to them as a result of that. I think it's important that you have just ordinary citizens being able to uh, frustrate activities of higher levels of government. I think it's important that people feel empowered, that they do have some control over the evils that are happening, because a lot of what feeds into that bury your head in the sand approach to uh, just denying that problems exist is even if you do know the problems exist, you may not exactly know what to do about it. But we found that if you get enough people, you can shut down facilities where this is happening. And I think that provides a, a lot of hope and it does have direct effects instead of waiting all the way till November and then waiting another six months for them to pass a bill. We, we need to protect our neighbors now, right now, because we may not get a chance in November or next April or whenever uh, Washington, D.C. and state governments decide to pull their head out of their ass and actually abolish the all-American Gestapo. Robert, I want to dig more into those primaries. How does electoral politics play into this? How can we if at all, effectively engage in elections to push the cause of abolishing ICE and CBP, ending detention and deportation? Well, uh, I'm going to use a term, very problematic history, but I think it's, uh, it's something important that we do need to touch on with more the electorate end, and that's um, states' rights and local rights. Under federalism, there is a considerable amount of self-determination that states and large local municipalities can make for themselves. That those rights have been repeatedly beaten down since Reagan. Federal electorates have been using and state electorates have been using preemption, which is originally supposed to be an emergency measure at the federal level, but now they're using preemption to go over the head of the rules of local municipalities or states to uh, install their own uh, favored corporate facilities. So it's important that states reassert that they can protect human rights on their own, regardless of the blessing of the federal government. And we've had at rallies for families belonging together or at Occupy ICE, we have had candidates and political figures uh, saying we, we will be doing everything in our power to shut this down, to refuse to cooperate, to not allow them to operate within our state or our city. And I think it's important that communities feel that they have the ability to defend themselves, which it has been infringed upon repeatedly by the federal government, but we are not at the point where there is, there still is a wealth of legal precedent for local communities and states to be able to assert their own values on human rights, irrespective of the federal government's wishes. I'm incredibly more pessimistic about um, electoral politics, and I think that uh, for minorities in this country, they have very little reason to believe that 
electoral politics is going to save them. I think that we would see at least some number of families being separated, not at this level. If Hillary Clinton was elected, um, we would still need a resistance, no matter which Democrat would have been elected at the um, national level. And we only got it because Donald Trump was elected. And so uh, I, I, I just and this is coming from someone who's worked in politics um, his whole career. I have a political science degree and I just here we had politicians visit the occupation as well and then we had those same politicians allow for the Portland police to um, assist DHS in opening the facility again and so um, in Portland and in Oregon a little differently than in Michigan we have only one party rule where it's only the Democrats that run the state level and, and run the city. And we still are seeing, you know, people, someone was shot in Portland just um, on June 30th, a black man, a veteran. And it's just, it, it's hard for me to say that um, just from being a progressive politician that you're going to be able to, uh, to, to put a halt to a system that is hundreds of years in the making. And I think the only people who can do that are movements on the streets um, and, and that isn't to say that there's no hope in voting or that you shouldn't vote you absolutely should vote and, I, and I'm incredibly discouraged that um, Millennials don't vote in the numbers that we should be but um, I also think that voting is not even close to enough and, and far too many people think that it is um, and I also think that um, it's potentially possible that in 2018 and in 2020, there's a huge swing to the left. Um, and then pe black people are still going to be shot on the streets. People are still going to be deported. And a lot of people will exit the movement thinking that they've won. Uh, we, we had a similar issue with that. Uh, Detroit's mayor's Mike Duggan, a Democrat. And after our blockade on Monday, it was the Detroit Police Department at the urging of DHS that forced us to break up our camp. There were only a couple of DHS vehicles present, but nine Detroit Police Department squad cars who were threatening to bring in dump trucks and throw away everyone's personal property that was on the premises. So we, uh, we got on the horn with local media and uh, put his office's phone number on blast because he wasn't protecting nonviolent protesters. He was enabling genocide. And I tell you what, we didn't hear a peep out of the Detroit Police Department since then. So it is a good it is a good idea just to try to get your local leaders involved, whether whether they actually want to be involved or not, just to see what public pressure can do and keep moving that needle and keep normalizing the fact that we can get results when we speak out, keep normalizing the fact that an ordinary citizen can do their part to resist genocide. Because there's there's a certain uh, psychological campaign that we're waging as well as a, a physical one. I think your points about electoral politics are really valid and really important. So I want to bring up what a lot of folks have felt was an electoral victory for the Abolish ICE movement. We saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an Abolish ICE candidate, unseat incumbent Joe Crowley, who voted to found ICE in New York 14th Democratic primary. Do you think this has any significance? I think it has a huge significance. I especially think it has huge significance for socialism in general. Um, and, and I think uh, the, that that might be the way forward is for socialists to take over um, the, the Democratic Party. I think it is discouraging that uh, the Democratic Party is, has basically, Nancy Pelosi has said that um, this is not indicative of, of the new party, um, but I don't think that's up to them. And so I think moving forward, um, it is incredibly encouraging. But if you are getting deported tomorrow from Oregon, a win in New York um, that, that she won't be seated for a long time um, is, is not going to sort of change your life right now. And so I think it's important that we continue those wins, but that we don't take that as like a mission accomplished, but we also continue to be in the streets because um, it makes it a lot easier for her to win when there are people in the streets and when there are socialist organizations that are supporting them. One of the biggest things that we're trying to get across here is that mass action does work in the now. Look at what Portland was able to do, starting with five people after a rally. 
Detroit. We had we only had 40 people and we were able to block all three gates of an ICE detention facility and the and the southern tip of Mount Elliott Street for a time as well. When you have numbers and you have those numbers organized, there is no force at the federal or state level that can stop you. We have everything we need right now. We just need to get people out. But it but it will work once we do. There is a, a long list of historical precedents backing that up. And we've just seen with what Portland did, what we've done in Detroit, what they're doing in New York. It works. We just need committed people. But I suppose getting the committed people is the trick. Yeah, that's what I kind of wanted to talk about next. How do we keep up the Trump resistance energy going beyond 2018 and 2020? How do we make sure folks know that Trump is not the problem, but a symptom of the problem? I I think that there has been movement towards this in which we're beginning to sort of center um, the voices that are most oppressed and most marginalized by um, the Trump administration and also the conditions that lead to that. I also think that uh, much of America is taking sort of the rise of fascism globally as well as in the in the states um, more serious. And, you know, we could have Democrats all across the country. Um, it wouldn't matter if there was still 25, 30 percent of the country that has incredibly fascist tendencies. So we need to take fascism as as a legitimate threat. But I I think more importantly, we need to center um, women of color, such as in New York. We need to center um, black trans women and and really anybody who is oppressed because white, male, straight Democrats are not getting the job done. And I, I think that's something that we're going to see in 2020. And I hope that the Democratic Party takes note. I think Greg touched on an excellent point and something that I've seen very effective uh, just being involved with Michigan organizing, and that is centering on voices of color, women in particular. These are groups that have been oppressed, and with the nature of oppression, with each category you're oppressed by, it it stacks class, race, uh, gender, sexual orientation. It all adds up, and we've had such a long history of beating these people down and trying to silence them, that simply broadcasting their words, making sure that they're making uh, the lion's share of leadership decisions on movements, I think that's such an important part just on its own, simply because you'll have a lot of people that just aren't familiar with the plight of a black trans woman, just aren't familiar with a Native American water protector. We need to get them familiar, and hopefully their innate sense of empathy and compassion will move them enough to be to be further radicalized, to move further left, to get out in the streets, get on the line, as well as in the poll booth. Because right now, anyone going hashtag Blue Wave 2018 isn't really helping us. So you gotta so you gotta listen first, and to listen first, we gotta make sure that people are able to hear which is what I've appreciated out of a lot of local groups, uh, making sure that when we do highlight uh, marginalized issues, we are putting people of color and the work that they do in the spotlight, making sure that they're having a prominent leadership role in the proceedings. So lastly, how can folks get involved in the Occupy ICE movement? What actions can our listeners take right now to make an impact? I think people keep asking us this um, uh, from across the country, and they say, how can we send stuff? How do we send supplies? How do we send money? Um, that if, if you walk into the camp in Portland, well, every single day there's some amount of supplies that are lacking, but we have an immense network to be able to get those needs met. The thing we want to see the most is for you to start an occupation where you are. Um, and so... A lot of people say, well, I I don't have the ability to do that. But it it took five people here to get it going. And uh, I think that it it could work similarly in a lot of other places. If you want to specifically um, support our occupation all over Twitter, there's the Occupy Ice PDX. Um, You can find that. 
and eventually we're going to have to move towards legal support as things are sort of coming to a head with DHS. But really, my number one thing is, is do what you can to not um, focus on supporting the occupations that are already going on, because those cities should, should have it for themselves, but rather to go uh, start an occupation where you are. And it, it might look very different. It might look like you just come and march around it every day. It might come and look like you are uh, blockading a street. It might be that you stand out there with a sign, or it might be that you bring 10 tents even though you're only one person. Um, but do what you can physically, and supporting on the internet uh, is absolutely not enough. So um, you can look as woke as you want for your Facebook friends, and on Twitter, that like gives you some cool points, I guess, but uh, we need to start seeing more like pictures of people being there. We've been in a uh, very fantastic supply situation since day one, so I want to give a shout-out to everyone who supported us that way. It actually got to the point where we basically had an entire studio apartment full of cases of water. Now, we've we've sent that to uh, Flint, uh, victims of the Flint water poisoning and victims of the Detroit water shutoffs. So we do make sure that stuff goes to a good cause. And we also have a, uh, a GoFundMe up for um, primarily legal defense, but also perhaps essential supplies, getting people rides there. We were very well stocked on medical supplies, so we do have what we need for an occupation. It's just a matter of actually getting bodies out there. If you can't make it to an event in Detroit and um, going date-wise, uh, we will be resuming, we're going to be regrouping and resuming a lot of our major activities uh, the day after the release of this podcast. So what we need more than anything are people. So if you can't make it, please just just share the page. And don't just share the page. Try to talk to people individually, whether it's on Facebook Messenger or the phone that you think would be interested and are able to get down there. Word of mouth is able to get this movement uh, a lot of places. It's just a matter of taking the time, talking to people, and trying to move people. We've got everything we need physical supply-wise. We just need more people for this to be successful because the tactics do work. Okay, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. I really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course, and thank you again for your work. Now, let's take a quick break to hear from Nathan and Dylan. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. Thanks for staying with us. Now I'll be speaking with Carolina Bordoletto, co-founder of CT Students for a Dream. Carolina, a big question people have is how we got here. Obviously, there's been a lot of visibility around the family separation policy. But a lot of what has happened, a lot of what happened prior in the past three presidential administrations in particular has gone under the radar. Could you give us a sense of what made family separation at the border possible in the first place? Yeah. I think when you ask, like, what made this possible, it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. In the last few presidents, we have seen that the enforcement apparatus has gotten stronger and more well-funded. Like, I think a good example is 
that we always hear people say that we, we secure the border. I mean, here we can deal with, you know, undocumented immigrants, but first we secure the border. But uh, the truth is that the border has never been more militarized than it is now. I mean, it's a, it's, I don't know the number, but it's a, a huge, sizable chunk of, of, our, of our national budget. It's just uh, border security and the agencies of ICE and border patrol. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that so ICE, it's a recent development in our history. Like it didn't exist for 9/11. It, it did not exist. It did not exist. It did not exist in the way that it does now. And that's the agency that's you know carrying out these family separations now. We like we can't imag- imagine a time where the current government agencies do not exist. But the fact is that they used to not exist. And if they didn't exist before, maybe we can go back to a time when they did not exist. I think you're absolutely right, though, that there's this near history and far history to what's happening today. And let's start with the near history. In 1996, Bill Clinton signed into law the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. It really opened up the United States to a mass deportation force. And then, as you mentioned, just post 9-11, a bipartisan Congress and George W. Bush created ICE and CBP under the Department of Homeland Security, which marked the federal government's treatment of immigrants as inherent national security threats. We saw the Obama administration deport more undocumented Americans than any other president in history. It's not often talk about, but it's kind of known in the immigrant rights community that Obama is called the deported-in-chief for a reason. He deported the most amount of undocumented immigrants as any presidents. And if you combine all other presidents and him, he comes pretty close to also beating all the other presidents. Under the Obama administration, the enforcement structure was really ramped up. It was used more. More people were deported, especially coming across the border. A lot of people were apprehended coming across the border. And a lot of people, you know, think of Obama as supporting the immigrant community because he, you know, did DACA back on June 15, 2012. But I think that because it was his administration that implemented DACA, he got away with a lot more than he would have if he had not implemented DACA. That's really important talking about DACA because we see Democrats a lot of time treat DACA as kind of the highest bar that we can reach. Could you tell us what exactly DACA is and how it's different from the DREAM Act? So DACA is a program that the Obama administration implemented in 2012, and it allows some undocumented youth who came here when they were young uh, to meet very specific requirements of coming here under 16, being here consecutively since 2007, graduate from high school and having no families or misdemeanors. But if you meet all those requirements, you are able to apply for a work permit. With that work permit, you're able to apply for some security number. It gives you the work permit and then also safety from deportation. Theoretically, although we have seen people with DACA have been apprehended and deported. DACA is different from the DREAM Act because DACA is, is temporary. It's just a policy that could be overturned at any time. And I feel like we've been we've been saying for so many years that DACA is temporary and it could have been overturned. And but I never really thought the day would come. But then last fall the day came that DACA was overturned and now it doesn't exist anymore in the same way as it did. The Dream Act is a legislative solution, so instead of giving a a work permit, it would give green card and adventure citizenship. And it would be a piece of legislation so it could not be easily overturned on the, the whims of the next presidential administration, which we saw, which we saw today. I'm not today, this year. So going to the way far back history that you mentioned, I'd like to kind of touch on the history of deportation and detainment. Something a lot of folks don't know is that detainment and deportation weren't considered constitutional federal jurisdiction until the Chinese Exclusion Act. Quite literally, our immigration system is rooted in white supremacy and specifically Chinese exclusion. How does what's happening today and what you've talked about in the previous administrations reflect the racist history of immigration policy coming out of the federal government? Yeah, immigration has always been racialized in this country. Like you just said, deportation wasn't used 
as a as an enforcement enforcement method until the immigrants were no longer white. I mean, all the ways of immigrants, people from Europe, you know, Ireland, Italy, they still faced discrimination when they came here, but they were never deported. The deportation machine really has become a tool to make the country closer to what those in power would like it to be like. I think something that Democrats and Republicans alike miss is that deportation and detention are inherently cruel practices. There's this rhetoric on the Democratic side even that it's okay to detain and deport people if they're criminals. Could you tell us why deportation and detention are inherently dehumanizing and inhumane practices? Yeah, and that's something that we, like we hear a lot, that it's okay for, for this to happen to some people because they didn't follow the law. And they're like, well, if they would have just followed the law, this would not, not be happening. And it, it's amazing what we can do to people when we tell stories to ourselves about who they are and what they deserve. Detention is inherently inhumane because you're locking someone up, you're taking away their freedom, you're taking someone away from their community, and especially when you're locked up to a country that you just got to, which is happening with kids at the border. Your whole world is, is thrown in, into chaos. And when you're you know, detained behind bars, you're not really seen as a human. You're given, you're given a number and you're not really seen as, as a whole person. And I think deportation, aside from detaining, is also dehumanizing because, again, you're tearing someone from the community. So not only is the person who left feel the grief of being torn apart, but so do the people left behind. So it's something that never just affects one person, it affects the whole community. And I think that gets to how family separation isn't just a problem at the border because of Donald Trump, it's a problem across the country. Even if we ended family separation at the border, family separation within the border is very much legal. And the rhetoric we hear often criminalizes undocumented elders and parents. It makes it okay to separate families by deporting parents and elders as long as we keep the youth. Could you tell us about this dynamic and why it's so important to support all undocumented people, not just youth? Yeah, I think this is a pattern that I've seen like consistently in the immigration rights debate or discourse. First it was with, with the DREAM Act that, you know, the, the popular phrase was they came here through no fault of their own. So basically they deserve a break. But the implication is that their parents did something wrong by coming here. So it's okay to deport their parents as long as we keep the kids here and pass the dream act to protect them. But then you're separating families and like no child wants to be like, Okay, I'll get my papers and it's okay. So it's okay if you deport my parents as long as I get my papers. <laughs> like that that's a horrible thing to do and it's a horrible choice to ask people to make. And what I've just been realizing is that what's happening on the border nowadays, I mean, the last couple of weeks, it's kind of like the next iteration of that, uh, because we're seeing a lot of a lot of outrage, justifiable outrage from from a lot of people about what's happening. And in most circles, I just hear people talking about the kids, the popular hashtag, where are the children? And, you know, people are appalled about the images, and they should be, of Oh no, kids in cages and kids calling for the parents. But then what's missing from the story is the parents themselves. Like I've seen things on Facebook where people are like, let's collect bills and send to the kids. Or can I get, is there a way they can get a job and go there and just comfort the kids? And I'm like, that's great. I mean, that's great. It's great to comfort kids. I want every kid to be happy. But we can't forget about the parents and about, about the whole system. So we need to, well, fight to dismantle the whole system because while the current system is in place, the kids are, are still going to keep suffering and no amount of bears or hugs from strangers uh, are going to fix that. That really gets to the point of how to effectively respond to the family separation policy. What do we actually need to be seeing in rhetoric as well as action? Action might be a bit more complicated. There's a lot of debate around that. But in terms of rhetoric, at least... I've been saying for people not, I mean, that we can't just say keep families together, 
because if you say that, you're essentially saying let's keep families together behind bars. And then that's, kind of, that's what we saw this week, that the quote-unquote executive order to, to keep families together was really just an executive order to keep entire families behind bars indefinitely. And like I said, I think the, the proper ask or demand is to defund ICE or abolish ICE so that we don't keep seeing the increasing militarization of not only the border, but of the whole immigration system. So you've kind of touched upon this already, but how does ICE, how do deportation and detention play into the prison industrial complex? Well, most of the uh, immigration detention centers, if not all of them, actually, are run by private contractors, uh, private contractors that get paid by the government. So, and private, and private contractors that donate money to election campaigns of politicians. So it's kind of like this vicious circle. The private contractors have an incentive to keep as many people in, in their facility for as long as they can because they make more money from the federal government by doing so. Um, and then if the private contractors make more money, they donate more money to all elected officials. And, the, and then all elected officials have less of an incentive to decrease the military industrial complex. So it, it's, it's a big circle that keeps feeding onto itself. And what we're seeing this week is one of the results of that. Now, your point about not exchanging family separation for indefinite family detainment is so necessary, especially since we're seeing a lot of rallies really message around keeping families together, but not recognizing that that doesn't work if we're not abolishing ICE, we're not abolishing immigration detention, because it, it does imply that we just get to lock up undocumented families, deport them together. What are the most effective ways to rally and protest? Where do we need to be rallying? What do we need to be saying? Who do we need to be saying it to? How do we interact with public officials? I think to interact with public officials effectively, we need to ask the hard questions that they don't want to hear. Because if we you know, just ask them, do you support keeping families together? Uh, no one's going to say no. We need to ask questions that make them uncomfortable. Like, do we really need ICE to keep increasing and getting so much money? Or, you know, how does it keep or community safer to keep these families locked up and it doesn't? Or what do, how do you feel about abolishing ICE and getting rid of, you know, ICE CDP? I think the more we ask those questions and make our elected officials uncomfortable, the better it is. For the best places to, to protest, there's been a lot of recently um, actions around the country of people doing actions in front of detention centers and disrupting immigration offices or detention centers because you want to like disrupt their activities so that they see that they cannot continue doing what they're doing without us standing in the way, um, essentially. Even here in Connecticut, we've done some of that. There's the federal building in Hartford um, where people go for the immigration check-ins. And we've done um, civil disobedience in front of the in front of front doors, so that it blocks the doors. And that, that disrupts what they're doing, so, so it makes people pay attention. So lastly, how can folks get involved? So they can find my organization, Connecticut Students for Dream, on Facebook. You can search Connecticut Students for Dream. I can go on a, on a website. It's ct the number four aging.org. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for joining us on the podcast and helping inform people. Thank you for having me. Of course. We hope to have you on again. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, support us through our Patreon, check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.